0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Kavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're working our way through the Gospel of John, and uh, we are in the second part of chapter 10 today. Um, we're going to read verses 22 through verses 42, so we'll finish the, finish the chapter today, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version here. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered him, I-, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I- Give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us this morning, and we pray that you would speak to us. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Lord, I pray for any in the room who may not know you, would this be the day that your voice would bring their hearts to life? And for those who do know you, Lord, would you... Uh, would you encourage and strengthen? Show us the Savior afresh and your shepherding care that we might, uh, that we might be, have greater confidence in our walk with you and walk secure. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a passage where a couple of different things are going on, but I'm going to spend more of the time, the bulk of the time today, looking at Jesus' original teaching uh that he when original it's all original. I mean at the first part of the passage and uh the part that follows is a little bit of commentary of ongoing conflict between him and the Jews. I'm going to look at that a little uh, much more briefly, but I want to camp on kind of what's happening at the beginning. If you look at verse 22, it says that at the time of the feast of dedication, Um, uh, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. Um, so, this is Jesus at another feast. One of the interesting things about the Gospel of John is that we have seen Jesus numbers of times at feast interacting. We saw him at Passover. Uh, we saw him at the Feast of Booths, bringing extensive Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, bringing extensive teaching. And here he is at the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is not a. Uh, it's not an Old Covenant feast. It's not a. It's not a, a feast that was prescribed in, in our Old Testament. It's a feast that came much later, much, much later than the other feast, and Jews honored it. Uh, the Feast of Dedication celebrated an event that happened in 164 B.C. Uh, in Jerusalem. In 167 B.C., an Syrian. Emperor, um, who, who ruled the empire named Antiochus Epiphanes wanted to sort of equalize and, uh, religion in all of his empire. And, uh, so to do so, one of the things he did was in the Jews temple in Jerusalem, he, um, he erected a statue to Zeus. Which is an absolute anathema to the Jews, obviously. This led to a revolt led by a a Jewish man named uh, Maccabeus. And it was called the Maccabean Revolt. And so he revolted against the emperor. They ultimately were able to stand their ground. They won. And then in 164 BC, they rebuilt the temple, which had been uh, obviously desecrated. They rebuilt the temple, and they took eight days to celebrate uh, this dedication of the temple. And so it was called the Feast of Lights, the Feast of Dedication or Consecration, because it was the dedication of the temple for eight days, or we today would know it as Hanukkah. So it took place in December. So this is Jesus at a Hanukkah celebration. Um, it was not like the other feast that required everyone to come to the temple. You could celebrate this one in your home, but some people did come to the temple. And Jesus is at the temple during the Feast of Dedication, and it says, verse 22, it was winter. Now, we know it was winter. Um, that's a statement of the season, but it may be a statement of something a little bit more than the season. We don't usually get statements in the gospel about it, it was springtime, and Jesus said, and in the summer, he was walking by. We don't get that. So it's very unusual that he would tell us this. It may be a statement about the environment. I mean... Jesus is receiving a cold reception, an icy reception from the Jews at this time, and so it's a winter not only on the calendar and in the air, but it's certainly as well a winter in the sense of Jesus' reception, and it's also kind of the barren time uh, right before his death. The next time we see Jesus at a festival will be in the spring, so this is winter. In the spring, he'll be at Passover, and that'll be where he's arrested and killed. So he's only got one more feast to go to. It's a winter time, sort of, so to speak, in his ministry. Now, in the previous section, he has described himself as the good shepherd, taught about being the good shepherd, and he's going to bring up those same themes again in what we just read. Here's how he gets to that good shepherd teaching again. Uh, He's in the colonnade of, of the temple. It's kind of a covered area a little bit, maybe because it was cold he's not out in the open area. It says, verse 24, "...the Jews gathered around him, and they said..." How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. How long will you keep us in suspense? Some people translate this, how long will you annoy us? It's another, it's an alternative translation. How long will you annoy us? How long will you keep us in suspense? This is not the kind of suspense where people are eager and anticipating and believing in Jesus I mean, they said to him, when will you tell us plainly if you're the Christ? They know he's made such claims. They've already attempted to arrest him. They've already picked up stones attempting to kill him because he has claimed to be God, because he has claimed to be the chosen one. Um, he has already made claim, uh, clear claims about this. So they're not just curious. They are looking for one more piece of evidence to go after him, and boy, does he give it to them in this passage. Uh, So Jesus says to them, I told you, and you do not believe, verse 25. I've said this plainly, he said. I've I've made no hiding of who I am. Uh, I have told you. And he says this, the works, verse 25, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So he's saying something to them here. He's saying, look, I've been very clear, but you are, well, you're blind. You remember the teaching of the, where he healed the blind man previously, and the Pharisees are stricken with a spiritual blindness. They don't really see who Jesus is. Um, they don't really desire to know him or follow him because of the hardness of their heart. But he says, I've done these works, and these works they bear witness about me. These works that I do in my Father's name. When he has healed a lame man, when he has healed a blind man, when he has fed 5,000 people, these works demonstrate visibly that he is sent by his Father and is doing his Father's work. He has revealed himself by the works, but the people don't see it. They don't see Him as He is. They don't desire Him. There is something that hinders them. They're spiritually blind. They don't see it. They're also spiritually deaf. Because He says, I told you that as I spoke it, but you did, verse 26, you did not believe because you are not of My flock. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. So He's saying that, look, I have spoken... And some people have heard, and they're following. But you have heard, and you're not following, so you really haven't heard. The problem here is the hardness of heart of these Pharisees, of these uh, religious people. They are hard in their heart towards God. And so they do not see what is plainly before them. They do not hear what is plainly spoken. They do not embrace God in the flesh standing with them, Jesus Christ. Now, what is he saying here? This is most interesting. He says, I told you and you do not believe. You do not, 26, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. Is Jesus saying they don't, is he saying that the reason you don't believe is because you're not a part of the flock, or is he saying you're not a part of the flock because you don't believe? The latter is how we tend to think, but look what he says. He says, you do not believe because. What's the reason you do not believe? Let me explain your unbelief. Why do you not believe? Because you are not part of my flock. He's saying that some are part of his flock and some aren't part of his flock. And what happens when he speaks? I've told you, but you don't believe. He's told others, in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So Jesus is saying that there is a flock that exists, and that when he comes and speaks, certain people will not hear, and certain people will hear. And those who do hear and respond are those who are designated here his flock. Those who are designated his people, when he speaks, those who are part of the flock believe. Jesus has selected a flock. This is how Paul says that in Ephesians 1. Paul says that before the foundation of the world, he chose us in Christ. Actually, that's backward. He said he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God chose a people for himself. That's what Paul says. He chose us personally personally. And here Jesus is saying he has a flock. And the way you know who's in the flock is how they respond to when they hear the message of Jesus Christ. He's making the point that becoming his follower, my sheep hear my voice, verse 27, I know them. He's known them before the foundation of the world, actually. I know them and they follow me. What he's saying is those who follow him or those who are part of his flock, it is based upon grace. Being a part of Jesus' flock, being connected to him, being a follower of Jesus is based upon his his placing us in his flock, his choosing us, his giving us new life, or in this case, his opening our eyes and opening our ears so that we believe. We are dependent upon him for salvation. That is what he's communicating. The Pharisees are brilliant. I've commented on this before. They know more Old Testament. They have forgotten more Old Testament law than anyone in this room, than any of us will ever know. They know God's Word. They have been meticulous in obeying the laws that they have created to guard them from breaking God's Word. They are smart. They are careful. They are precise. And they are blind and they are deaf salvation comes not by our works, not by our carefulness, but it comes by the grace of God. We are dependent upon Him. We are dependent on Him to open our ears, upon Him to open our eyes. It's His choosing, His initiative, His death and resurrection, and His giving us new life. God enables us to be in the flock. He makes us people of His flock, and He does that without compromising our personal responsibility at all. The message of the Bible is very clearly this. If you are not a believer, blame yourself. If you are a believer, credit God. That is really the general, because believing is by grace. It is work of God. This is not the first time Jesus has said something like this. He has repeatedly in this gospel communicated that we are dependent upon Him for salvation completely. Completely. Back in chapter 6... Back in chapter 6, he said this, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So our coming to Jesus is based upon the Father giving us to Jesus. The Father gives us to Jesus, and then we will come, and he will never cast out. That's a wonderful gospel promise that we can always give to anyone. If you come to Christ, he will accept you. He will welcome you. If you're coming... You're part of the flock. Those who hear and respond and follow, those are the ones that God has, is, is saving. Or look at verse 44, a few verses down. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So how do we come to Jesus? How do we? Only by his drawing of us. It's the same thing he's saying to the Pharisees. You don't believe because you're not of the flock. If you're of the flock, you will hear and you will believe. If you believe, it's because he has drawn you to himself. He is the one that must act. We, we sang this morning, we love him because he first loved us. It is only because he loved us, because he took initiative with us, because he showered us with his care and opened our eyes to his work on the cross, that we love him in reply, we sang. That's very biblical, that we love in response to what he has done for us. Or think of chapter one, John one twenty two. I'm sorry, John one, twelve and thirteen. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How how are we able to receive Him? How are we able to believe Him? How are we able to become children of God, this verse says? Are we able to believe? Are we able to receive? Are we able to be his children? Or to use the metaphor of chapter 10, are we able to be one of his sheep and one of his flock? Are we able to do that by blood? That's the first thing he says, not by blood. What does he mean? Not by heritage, not by your blood heritage. That was the problem with the Pharisees. They argue with Jesus and say, Abraham is our father. We're, we're God's people because Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, no, actually, your father is the devil. Do you remember that? That's what he told them. They're not true children of Abraham because they're not believing in, in the God of Abraham who stands before them, Jesus Christ. So it's not of our heritage. Because your mom and dad were a Christian, that's a great privilege. That's a great privilege that you would hear the gospel and that you would be raised in the word of God and raised among the people of God in the church. That is a tremendous blessing and privilege, but it is not your basis for being a Christian. Young people, it does not matter how godly your parents are and how much they love Jesus. That is not your basis. That is a privilege and a blessing, but you must respond to Christ. Well, it's not by our, uh, it's not by our heritage. He says, who, um, become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man. It is not our will that saves us. It's not our will left to ourselves, left in our will. If God does not act upon us, we will remain dead in our transgressions and sins. We have no spiritual life. We are dead. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You don't have life. God must grant us. Life, it's not our will, but what is it? Who are born of God. It's not our heritage. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of the man. It's not my my initial choosing. It's God's activity upon me that I then respond to, ultimately, with my choosing. All who did receive Him, I receive Him because I've been born of Him. I believe in Him because we've been born of God. He gives us the right to become children of God. That's John 1, verses 12 through 13. God has sheep, and when they hear the voice of Jesus, they believe, and that's what he says according to this passage. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You do not believe because you're not part of this flock. Now, why are you saying all this? By the way, I realize everything I've just said has been um, historically, I'm not using all the theological language around it, but has historically been used as a matter of debate in the church. And that's grievous because what I'm just talking about here in these four, these three passages in John, um, and the passage we're reading today is not meant for debate. It's meant for comfort. It's meant for encouragement. It's meant to to magnify the grace and the love of God. Listen, one of the most helpful exercises you can do to understanding the grace of God first is studying the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection, the gospel itself. But the second thing you can do to appreciate the grace of God is study the application of the gospel to your life. To review for yourself, how did I become a Christian? To review for yourself, why am I a Christian? He's saying to these, you're part of the flock and you are believing. He's, he's saying to the, in, the, in the gospel of John, you believe because I draw you. Saying in the Gospel of John, it's not your will, it's the birth of God giving you birth that makes you a Christian. It's the grace of God. It's something he provides for us that we do not deserve. And when we track back and think of that, it is a tremendous encouragement. Let me give you one example of this. Um, Charles Spurgeon, who was a well-known uh, Baptist pastor, uh, Eng- uh, English Baptist pastor in the uh, 1900s, a very, very fruitful ministry of evangelism. Many people converted in his church and in his ministry through the people there and through his preaching. But th- I have loved this testimony of his. This is what he said. When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no idea the Lord was seeking me. That's the good shepherd. That's what we're talking about here. The Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when first I received these truths into my soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in spiritual knowledge through having found once and for all that clue to the truth of God. One weeknight, I was sitting in the house of God. I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, and the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, I thought, and then I asked, how came I to pray? Well, I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How did I come to read the scriptures? Well, I did read them, but what led me to do so? And then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all, that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me. And from that doctrine, I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. He just traced back and said, well, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? And at the bottom of it all is God. It's God who took the initiative. It's God who arranged the circumstances. It's God who orchestrated everything from him to having a Christian parent that witnessed to him or a Christian friend that witnessed to him or just having an urge out of the blue to show up at a church some Sunday and hear the gospel. Whatever it is, it was God orchestrating it. The God has a flock for himself, and God draws people into that flock by the shepherd's voice, his teaching. I'm saying all that to make this point. When we think, why do I, or my eyes open, and why are my ears open? It's not because I was better than the next guy, or more holy than the next guy, or smarter than the next guy. It's because God, Jesus spoke and allowed me to hear and to respond and to see what these people did not see in God. God has sheep. When they hear Jesus, they believe, and that is why they believe according to this passage. Now, that should be a great, great comfort. Jesus sent. He sent to call his flock, and he empowers them to follow him. The sheep will hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. He speaks And his people follow. That makes a difference. It makes a difference in saying, why am I following? Because God spoke to me in a clear way. It also has something to say about our being sent. Jesus is sent by God, and he is sent to open ears and to open uh, eyes, and we are sent as well. Jesus said in chapter 20 of John, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, he says that to his original disciples. But in a very, a secondary, but a very real way, the church is sent as well. It wasn't just the 12. We're all sent into a world where people need Jesus. And this truth that God opens eyes and ears, that we believe because we're a part of his flock, uh, all of these truths affect us in the way we communicate the gospel. And here's how they primarily affect. What Jesus is doing here is he's communicating to the Pharisees that they need something, They need God to work in them. That's what he communicated to Nicodemus. You've got to be born again. He's communicating that they need God. And this is encouraging because it means God does the saving. And God saves through a very simple witness. Here is the challenge that we can face. We can be intimidated to share our faith many times because we say, well, like, what if they ask something I can't answer? Well, first of all, let me say this. If you share the simple gospel that we are, God is holy, we are sinners, Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected for our sins, and that we become Christians by turning to our sin and receiving that free gift by believing in what he did for us, that simple gospel, that's what saves people. It will not be your ability to answer every mystery that they can share. I mean, look at this example. God in the flesh is talking to people and they don't get it. If Jesus, through his teaching, is not convincing them by the words he's saying, you absolutely aren't going to do so. You will not be smart enough. I will not have enough knowledge. I will not be able to answer every question so that they will say, whoa, all my questions are answered because of you. I guess I'm going to choose to believe that. It will be the Spirit of God that opens their eyes, just like you and just like me, like he did for us. God, Jesus has made it plain, but it's not plain to them. He said, I have told you plainly, but they say, when will you tell us plainly? He says, I've already told you is what he says right here. They're saying it's not plain. He said, I've been telling you. What is their need? They need God to open their heart. They need to repent of their arrogance and their self-righteousness and see that they need God. That's what they need. And that's what we need as well. This week I had an opportunity, uh, just an opportunity to communicate the gospel to someone who was familiar with the gospel, but was not a believer in the gospel as far as I knew. And it was an interesting circumstance because I was able to share the gospel with this person. And then a friend of mine in the church showed up as well. And then this person shared the gospel with this person and very interestingly shared some of the exact same things i had been saying um you know it almost looked like cue cards or something but it wasn't some of the exact same things and the person that we were sharing the gospel with w- was just resistant to responding it was as if it just wasn't uh, he could he could explain he could you know pare it back and explain certain parts but it just wasn't lodging it didn't appear his eyes just weren't opening and then my friend after a while of sharing did something i thought was very wise he said well let's just pray let's just pray. So he prayed, wonderful prayer. I followed up with a very brief prayer. And in that, there was an expression of prayer saying, God, would you open our our friend's eyes here? Would you show him the gospel? Would you show him your love? Would you cause it to make sense? Why did we do that? Because Why did my friend say that we should start praying? Because it was evident that making statement after statement and quoting Scripture and explaining it wasn't lodging. And we didn't feel like it was time to put on a sales pitch and kind of hyper-close the deal with some presumptive close or something because he didn't see. And so that's why our friends said, we just need to pray that God will open. that. That's because we are dependent upon God. The gentleman we're talking to is dependent upon God. We need God to open our eyes and this should make us grateful that he has done so for us and it should make us rely upon him and confident when we try to share to others, realizing that the most basic message is what the Lord uses and we may not be able to answer everything else. That's okay. Nobody can answer all the mysteries of the universe. That's okay. Well, he says more than this. He goes on from, I told you it's not clear to them and his sheep hear his voice. He goes on to this account where he says, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and and the Father are one. So he makes this wonderful promise. The people who believe, they're his sheep. The others aren't in the flock. They don't believe. And once someone is his sheep, he gives them eternal life and he holds on to them forever, forever. This is a wonderful, wonderful promise that I, I think God wants to stir our hearts with today. He, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. They're not going to die spiritually ever. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus holds on to his sheep. Again, he's still talking from the good shepherd from beginning, right? My sheep hear my voice. He holds on to his sheep. And remember in the previous passage, he talked about the thief comes in and tries to steal the sheep, doesn't come in the gate, but climbs over the fence. No one is snatching a sheep out of Jesus's arms. He holds you and no one's going to affect that. Paul said this way, nothing can separate us from the love of God. God holds on to us, and will not let us go, and if that 's not enough because it is he 's God, but he he ensures that, and he says and goes on to say, uh, "My Father, who has given them to me, the Father gives us to the savior jesus he 's greater than all, and no one 's able to snatch them out of my father 's hand I and the Father are one, so God gives us to Jesus, Jesus holds us for eternity." And God watches over and protects. No one's taking you out of Jesus' hand. No one's taking you out of the Father's hand. He's greater than all, is what Jesus says right there. No one. And I've heard people say, well, no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, but you can snatch yourself out. You can choose to jump out of his hand. May I just say that completely violates the spirit of this text. I mean, we're not really to take any illustration and break it down to that degree. That violates the spirit of this text. The spirit of this text is you are cared for by God. What does he say? He says, I, here's how he starts. He doesn't start with, I'll hold them. He starts with, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. His sheep have eternal life. What does eternal mean? It means forever. It means endless it's not conditional he doesn't say i give them eternal life under certain conditions and they will never perish um you know results may vary uh and then i hold on to them and no one may snatch them they may snatch themselves or they may leap on some occasions if they choose to my father is greater than all but he's not greater than them they can choose to leap out and then they would be greater than him this is not the spirit of this passage the spirit of this passage is eternal, is forever. And God not only does this great job of bring the Father drawing us, God not only does this great job of saying, you want to be a child of God, you got to be born of God, I'm going to grant you birth, you receive the, the Savior. He not only does this great job of loving us for eternity, drawing us to Himself, but then once He gets a hold of us, He grabs us and He holds us forever. Man, that is the way to live your Christian life is to be aware of that. Not to think that I had to do everything to get in and I'm having to do everything to stay in. That is not the message of the gospel. That's the message of Phariseeism. That's what he's opposed to. He's saying, you guys can't even hear the truth. It is God holding on to us. You became a follower of Christ by grace. And I love this promise. You will remain a follower of Christ by grace through your faith. God will sustain your faith till the very end if you are his. He will sustain your faith. I love this quote from another, this is 19th century day. This guy was from the 19th century as well, J.C. Ryle. This is what he wrote about this passage. He says, Christ declares that his people will never perish. Weak as they are, they will be saved. Not one of them shall be lost and cast away. Not one of them shall miss heaven. If they err, they shall be brought back. If they fall, they shall be raised The enemies of their soul may be strong and mighty, but the Savior is mightier, and none shall pluck them out of their Savior's hands. What he doesn't say is that nothing will attempt to pluck you out of his hands. He just says nothing will succeed. Whatever, however mighty, Ryle said, however strong and mighty are the enemies of your soul, I want you to know today that Jesus is stronger God, who is greater than all, holds you. And there are some of us here today that you feel the enemies of your soul are very strong. Your flesh is weak. You say, I've fallen repeatedly. You may be here today with deep discouragement, bordering on hopelessness because of your sin. Your faith may be weak. Your passion for Christ may be dwindling. But I want you to know from this passage, the Savior is mightier than your flesh. The Savior is mightier than your dwindling passion. The Savior is mightier than our sins, our repeated sins. The Savior is mightier than our fallings and our stumblings. That must be our hope. And we need to turn our eyes to this passage. If that's you today, turn your eyes to this passage and see that no one will snatch you from his hand. He has got his hold on you. You may feel your grip is loosening. His is not. And that must be your hope today. Your hope must not be, I will try harder your hope must not be, I, I, you know, I'll try a new method. Your hope must be look to Jesus and repent of your sins and say, Christ, I trust that you're holding on to me. Your grip is my hope, not my grip. And I entrust myself to you. Empower me to walk with you. That must be our prayer. Listen, this is controversial too. I mean, everything he says here is controversial. I can't make it nearly as controversial as Jesus did because I don't think anybody's going to pick up stones at me here. He says this stuff, people are ready to kill him. This is controversial because some people say, well, I I don't really want to talk like that. Because if you start talking like that, people will feel they can do whatever they want and Jesus will still hang on to them and they're still a Christian. So if you start talking like giving too much grace, people will start saying, it doesn't matter what I do, I'll just go live in sin because I'm going to heaven anyway. So if you start saying we got in because it was all his work, we're staying because it's his work, well, we're staying because it's his work working through us. We do follow him, but it is his power following. We do remain believers, but it's his power granting us belief. So if you start saying that it's all of him in these ways, people are going to say, I can do whatever I want because I'm going to heaven. I'm forgiven. He's not going to let me go. Listen, if that's the attitude, then one of two things are going on. Either that person is ignorant of grace because that's not what the Bible teaches. Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, more sin means more grace. May it never be, Paul says. So that's a misunderstanding of grace. So someone who says that may be a genuine Christian, but they're just they're just ignorant. They need to be taught the Scripture, and that, that's understandable. They may be brand new and just don't know. But more likely, the person who says, it doesn't matter what I do, I'm forgiven regardless. I'm going to go do whatever I want. More likely, that person has never experienced grace. That person does not understand. That person does not really get it. When you see the cross of Christ and you see Jesus suffering and dying because of the sins that we have committed, that does not produce in one's heart a desire to then go pursue all the sins that nailed him to the cross. Cross. Now we have a flesh. We, we do sin. We love to sin. We, you know, we're, we're captivated by various idolatries. As believers, I understand that. For sure, that's true. But I'm talking about the person who says, it doesn't matter if I do that. It's one thing to acknowledge I struggle with sin and grieve over it. It's another thing to say, I struggle with sin, and it doesn't matter because I'm forgiven anyway. That person has never tasted... If that's you today... I would want you to have no assurance that that attitude reflects being a true believer. That attitude should cause you to question whether you've ever tasted grace because grace will cause you to love Jesus, not love the sins that killed him. So the attitude, I can do whatever I want, he's hanging on to me, and if we don't tell people that they may get out of his arms by their sin, then, then they're not going to stay in there. No, they're going to stay in his arms because he's holding them. And if we want to pursue sin, we may not really know And That's not the fruit of... Here's the fruit of love. To know that God loves us and cares for us and holds us and no one can snatch us out of his hands, that should promote love for Jesus. Because he's that kind of a God. Because none of us would stay in his arms. That's true. Left to ourselves. We would run to something else, perhaps, at times. But he holds us. Maybe a human illustration would help. Um, if you're a married woman and your husband is godly, and your husband says to you, "Um, I love you, I care about you, I will always love you. I will always be committed. You can't do anything that would cause me not to love you. I am committed to you and our marriage. Now, if he's super godly, and he says that, and he generally demonstrates that by his life, and he demonstrates it by his word. What woman is going to hear that and say, great, great. He said he's committed. I can go out and sleep with whoever I want. And by, by the way, the Bible, would, the Bible would use this illustration much more graphically. In the book of Hosea, where he would say to people, you're out whoring around is what you're doing. What woman would say to a husband that says, I love you and I'm committed to you. Great. I'm free to be immoral. No one would. That would, ins- that should inspire love. If that human illustration stands up at all, how much more the Savior who loves us perfectly, perfectly, faithfully, unconditionally, eternally, without sin, without sinful judgment, loves us completely that God when we see his love and his commitment and his faithfulness to the covenant he made with us or to use the metaphor here him holding the sheep and no one can snatch us out of his hands when we are gripped by that reality the appropriate response is not well then I want to look at other options I want to look at other idols I want to worship other gods I want other lovers so to speak as in the Hosea metaphor rather I love you, Lord, for that. That promotes godliness. That promotes my desire to know him and follow him. See, Jesus is critiquing the Pharisees here, but at the same time, he's revealing to us wonderful things about what it is to be the good shepherd and what that means for us. It means that we're his sheep because he has put us in his flock and he spoke to us and we heard. Others in the story here didn't. And it means that once we're in his flock, he's holding us for eternity. This is to melt our hearts. This is to soften our hearts. This is to cause us to worship and follow. Listen, the key to following Christ is not getting more rules. It's getting a clearer vision of Jesus. Because that affects our minds, that affects our affections, that affects our will to be inclined to serving Him. It's when we see Him like this... That then we say, Lord, what does your word tell me? What, what do you require of me in your word? How can I please you and love you and honor you? Because of your love for me. You can't have too much of the grace of God. You can't understand the love of God too much. And you can understand false grace, but you can't understand biblical grace. That's too much grace. Don't tell me all that, that God does all that. God is faithful and loving and gracious. Well, I've spent... W- Really, my whole time on these first few verses, I told you we would, it wouldn't be balanced in the whole passage. Let me just make a couple comments on how he breathes. Here's what happens. He says, I am the father of one, verse 30. They pick up stones ready to kill him. They pick up stones ready to kill him. And he, they, you know, he says, you know, what are you, which work have I done that you're killing me for? You know, is it feeding all those people out there? Or you know, what, what reason are you coming? They say, because you're blaspheming? They say, you a man, make yourself God. Isn't that ironic? He's God making himself man. It's just the opposite of their accusation. They're so blind, they say, you're a man making yourself God. The reality is he's God become man. And so he basically ends up saying to them... Uh, I'm doing these works of, he calls him to believe in his works. He says, verse 36 uh, the Father consecrated and sent him to the world. You say I'm blaspheming because I am the Son of God. If I'm not doing the works of God, believe the works because the works reflect the Father, is ultimately what he says. And then the passage closes, verse 40. He went out again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. So he left Jerusalem, the religious center, the wisdom of the teachers and the Pharisees who were constantly embattled with him. He leaves the religious environment. He goes around arguably some less sophisticated, less knowledgeable regular folk, and, uh, he goes out there in kind of a more desert, a secluded area. Verse 41, many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So the people come and say, look at him. John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the wo- sins of the world. This is, this is him. John, John the Baptist told us the truth. And many people believed. Now, we know belief in the Gospel of John is sometimes temporary and not genuine, but my assumption with no critique is that, at least at this point, it would appear that was real. Here's what happens. The Pharisees hear and they don't believe. Some other people hear and they do believe. Here, here's the function. There's a saying that the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Have you ever heard that? The same sun which melts wax Hardens clay it 's a hot day out today. welcome to summer in Dallas. Uh, if you put some wax out on your back patio and you put some clay out there 's going to be two different effects it 's the same heat, but something 's going to melt, and something 's going to harden that 's the dividing work of Jesus if you 're here today and you are not a believer in Christ, we just appeal. I appeal to you. turn to Christ and believe well i don 't know if i 'm in the flock or not here 's what Jesus said Chapter six. Anyone who comes to me, I will not cast him out. You don't have to worry about those details. That's comfort for someone who's a believer. Here's what you need to be concerned with. That you need a Savior before a holy God and that Jesus loves you and is that Savior. And if you come to him believing, he will receive you, he will hold on to you, he will forgive all your sins and give you eternal life. Don't allow this word from Jesus, from this text... When I say word from Jesus, I mean the Bible, not all that I'm saying. But don't allow this message, don't walk out of here refusing that because that means your heart is hardening. If you, every time you refuse, you are hardening. On the other hand, allow it to melt your heart like wax. Let the Word of Christ, the Scripture, the good news, allow that to soften your heart so that you see your need for a Savior. And if you are a Christian here today, If you are a Christian, may our hearts be melted like wax as well. May they be softened to receive, really, this is what we've talked about really the last three weeks, to receive the love of God, to to receive God's indescribable, powerful love to rest in his love, to think about his love, to consider what he's done for us, to consider how he's holding us and to respond with a heart that says, Lord, because you've loved me, I want to love you in reply. I want to love you and live for your glory as well. You so loved me that You gave your life and I want to respond by following you. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. God, help me to be a faithful follower of you not so that I stay in your good favor, I already have that, but so that I live in a way that pleases the one who loves me in an indescribable way. I want to pray now that God would soften our hearts, that there'd be no hearts of clay which are hardening under the word of God, but we'd have hearts of of wax which melt and soften in response to God. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.